Let's go to 1 Corinthians 8. Now, Sally was laughing at my opening questions. Um, it isn't interesting in Oklahoma, you can barely go, uh, like if I'm going from here to see Rhonda's folks in Joplin area, uh, you can hardly go uh, 30 or 40 miles without having a road construction deal. And all kinds of warnings on you better slow that thing down or, you know. And now these days, there's a highway patrol sitting there kind of making sure you're minding your P's and Q's. It, it, which I understand is safety for road construction crews and that kind of thing. But it's kind of interesting when I, I encounter one of these things that says, proceed with caution. And I've got to kind of deal with that. Am I going to heed that warning? Am I going to really be careful as I walk, as I drive? Now, I'm finding that at 58 years old, I have to proceed with caution just to walk on the sidewalk. <laughs> I can trip over the pattern in the carpet, you know, and have on a regular basis. But isn't it interesting that there's so many ways in which we've got to just be careful well, you know, roadways and sidewalks and that kind of thing aren't the only places where you and I need to proceed with caution. In fact, we're going to deal with the situation today. As we talk about how to live together in community, we're going to deal with a situation today that is, is it's not cryptic, but it's really kind of hard to wrangle with. And, and as I encountered this this week and kind of dealt with it, 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 it kind of came to mind for me that this is really healthy that I deal with, that I make myself deal with this issue. And uh, so we're going to kind of deal with, with uh, you ready? Meat offered to idols today. And what's the big deal about meat offered to idols? So I think I've kind of gotten my brain around what's going on there. And I'll try to share that with you. We'll try to learn something from it. Let's go to 1 Corinthians. Well, let me give you just a little bit of background. And then, Bob, if you're back there, I'll let you read the first three verses of 8 in just a minute. Now, um, uh, what we're kind of dealing with here is um, Corinth of Paul's day, and Terry gave you, I'm sure, some background on this last week, but, but uh, Corinth in Paul's day was an incredibly um, uh, thriving, driving place. It was hustling and bustling. Think of modern-day New York City. Uh, lots of commerce, lots of things going on, but there was also lots of pagan activity. Um, in fact, there were many uh, temples there that were devoted to the worship of what you and I would call, uh, you know, what the Bible um, uses as small g God. I think it's interesting when, when they refer to God in, uh, in the Old Testament especially, it's, his name is so revered that they won't even write it. Uh, in fact, if you look at, to look at an original manuscript, it just kind of skips it. Um, um, and, uh, and, and yet when it describes one of the gods of the peoples around them, it will use a small g to describe them. So anytime you read about that in the scriptures, that's what we're dealing with. Well, there were lots of those in Corinth uh, in, in the first century. Um, and those temples would often host a religious festival that would, um, that would those who could afford to do so, and there weren't too many, but, but there were some wealthy patrons who would come to these religious festivals, and they would often sacrifice animals in the process. Well, as they did so, um, uh, the, the animals weren't completely used for, they weren't just burned up, okay? So let's put in our mind 
uh, I was talking to a student, a former student in Nashville, um, uh, Tuesday morning. We had I had breakfast with a bunch of guys that I spent some time with when they were in school, and uh, one of these guys was talking about he just he was living now in northern Indiana. He was talking about some farmer there has sold him a. Uh, a side of beef or a half side of beef or something. I've never done that. I've always kind of wanted to do that. So, but imagine all that meat that comes forth from a cow. So they've sacrificed a beef, let's say. Now, not all of that is going to be burned on some altar, even a pagan altar. Okay, so let's think about that for a minute. Um, part of that certainly would be burned as an offering to that deity, that deity that wasn't a deity at all, uh, in fact, the Bible's pretty clear about uh, the small g gods aren't real, but there's people that, worshiping, that are worshiping them still in that day. Uh, another portion of it then would be reserved for uh, those who worked at the temple, okay? The, uh, the priests, priestesses of the temple. Now, that's a whole other discussion, but some of that meat then would be reserved. They would take part of that. It was legal and right to do that. Okay, let me stop for just a second. Sharon Regeer, you haven't been here in a while. It's good to have you back home. You've been doing great work for about four months, I understand, in California with your daughter who is kind of in a high-risk pregnancy deal. The baby weighed nine pounds. So you did your job really, really well. And daughter's okay. Okay. Uh, well, Jerry looks a lot happier. I just want you to know that. He was kind of getting crabby before you got back home, you know? All right. But it's just good to have you home. And he, he just couldn't wait to tell me you were back today. So that's, that's wonderful. Okay, so part of this would be sacrifice to these gods that really weren't. Part of it would be given to the priest for kind of uh, a stipend. Uh, a third section of it then, the biggest portion of this beef, let's say, would be made available to the public at large. They might, as a result of some religious festival, throw a big barbecue, okay? Uh, and, and people, that, and the key here is people who typically couldn't afford to eat meat could afford to eat it during a festival. In fact, they might show up to the banquet just because, hey, I hear they've got brisket there, okay? I, I get that, don't, don't you? I, I get that completely. Well, I, I, I don't know if I'm going or not, but I heard they have brisket, so I'll probably show up, okay? So that's kind of the deal. Uh, and then there was actually a fourth thing that happened, and that is if this thing had a lot to it, they might place a lot of it in a butcher's case in the local meat market. It would be tagged, okay? This is, you know, this is um, Kobe beef, and this is beef that was sacrificed to an idol, okay? So, I mean, it would be there, it would be on display, it'd be a little cheaper, but you could buy it there if there was some of that left over. So that's a culture that you and I don't really understand. We don't have any frame of reference with it. But that's what Paul's dealing with when he gets to Corinth with these people that just seem to get into all kinds of shenanigans. As I'm sure Terry talked to you about a little bit last week. So one of them is this issue of meat offered to idols. Now, um, the issue here, okay, and, and we need to probably refer back to, at least in our minds, to Acts 15, where the church made a decision. Peter, James, all the disciples gathered in Jerusalem. They had Paul come to them and say, okay, we're, there, are, there are more Gentiles coming to faith than Jewish people. 
everywhere he goes. He said, but we got an issue here. There are people everywhere I go who are saying these Gentile believers who believe in the same Lord Jesus Christ that you do, raised from the dead. We got people that are showing up saying, okay, but you got to become Jews first. Now, let's think about a couple of things. So in Acts 15, they deal with it. Because one of the things that would have been a severe blow to evangelism in the first century, to other Gentiles finding, coming to faith, was do these people have to be circumcised in order to be Christian? I'll let you reach your own conclusion of how tough that would be on evangelism. I'm reading in Genesis this week about Abraham circumcising all of his family and all the, all the group that was with him, hundreds of people that were with kind of in his entourage in that day, when that, whole, when that um, began, when that whole process began. And how difficult it was for them. Can you imagine for a person who doesn't know Yahweh God, doesn't know the Old Testament God, to say, okay, we want you to become a part of our church, but... You reach your own conclusions about that. That'd be a little tough, right? So the early church in Acts 15 said, you don't have to do that to the Gentiles. That was a, whew, for Paul and for, you know, lots of guys in the Gentile countries, right? Now, but secondly, they just did a parenthetical thing in Acts 15 and said, and by the way, here's what we're going to ask you to do. Include them in the family of faith. Every, the ground is level at the foot of the cross, right? Include them in the family of faith. Embrace them as you would a Jewish believer. Just, you don't have to circumcise them. They don't have to be, um, they don't have to go through that ritual to become a Christian. But, tell them to abstain from sexual immorality and from eating meat that was sacrificed to idols. They felt like that was a significant issue. Now, Paul's going to weigh in on this in 1 Corinthians 8. I've given you way more background than you probably want to know, but there we go. Read the first three verses, Bob, would you? Okay, this is kind of interesting here. The, the first word that goes in your blank is the word knowledge. Paul wants us and them to be aware of the nature of knowledge and how it can be abused or misused. Paul is actually going to deal with in this chapter, as he does in this whole book, he will occasionally quote a, a, a commonly held slogan. Okay? A slogan. What's a slogan that kind of we hear today that people kind of, an adage that people kind of go by. Just do it. I'm sorry? Just do, it. Just do it. Okay, the Nike thing. Yeah, all right. See it everywhere. And, and we quote it often, right? Okay, there's a slogan that kind of, kind of rules our day. What's another slogan that rules our day? Waste not, want not. Waste not, want not. I believe that's from uh, Poor Richard's Almanac and Benjamin Franklin, I believe. By the way, sometimes people will quote... <coughs> Benjamin Franklin, as if it's scriptural. <laughs> you know, yeah. yeah. Charity begins at home, the good book says, right? That's not in here. But that's not a bad idea. It's just not in here. Okay? You kind of get the idea? Well, these are slogans that you and I have grown up with. One of them that they would have grown up with, interestingly, Paul quotes here and says, we all possess knowledge. 
He's going to kind of deal with that. Now, because of, um, he's having to deal with this because of this kind of attitude of spiritual or intellectual arrogance that has taken over part of the church. Now, I'm so glad that Paul dealt with this then and got rid of it because we never have to deal with that today, right, in the church? Spiritual arrogance or intellectual arrogance, it's all gone away 20 centuries ago. Not exactly, did it? We still kind of have to deal with this. The idea here is that the possession of knowledge can lead to a really insipid kind of pride. Now, here's their thinking, and I've, I've just finally got my head around this on what they're dealing with. The Corinthians were thinking, okay, these with superior knowledge were thinking, these gods are gods of stone, okay, little g gods are gods of stone. Therefore, whatever is done in worship of them doesn't really matter. Okay, so if I go to a a barbecue banquet where um, they're having brisket, really good brisket, haven't had any in a year. But there's a statue at the head table that everybody's kind of bowing down to as they go through the buffet line. It doesn't matter because that thing's not real anyway. Isn't that interesting? They thought that... Since I acknowledge, because I have superior kind of wisdom and knowledge here, since I have knowledge of that, it doesn't matter what I do because that God doesn't exist anyway. we got some California people back. I'm so glad you guys tripped back over here. Are you going to be here for a while? If the, weather do, if, if the heat doesn't go down, you're going back, aren't you? Yeah, okay. Now, so he's dealing with here with acting not just with knowledge that I'm kind of lording it over people or kind of stick it in your face, but he's dealing here with a knowledge that's applicable, usable, and you and I know that the Bible calls that wisdom. Okay? There is a difference between knowledge that, in fact, in verse uh, 1 or 2 here, he deals with knowledge puffs up, right? Okay? Um, He's dealing with that kind of knowledge. But we also know that there is kind of a, and, and by the way, we value this a lot. There are a couple of you, in the, several of you in this room that have a lot of this, um, what I would call understanding. The Bible talks a lot about understanding, which is what I would call, in, in kind of my nomenclature, I would call it horse sense. Jerry, do you have any horse sense? Uh, you've been around horses a lot. You ought to have some horse sense, Okay. I bet he does, don't you? And I like being around people that got horse sense. They've got just kind of worldly wisdom about how things really are. Okay? If I want to know about business and how to thrive in a business, I might do, as I do occasionally, sit down with Ralph and say, okay, Ralph, how does this really work? Okay? If I want to know how to invest, I might sit down with David and say, okay, David, distill this for me. I don't really understand what's going on. And he's looking at me saying, well, why haven't you done that? Okay. If I want to understand the ins and outs of the 12-step of, of the system and, um, and how uh, kind of some of the things that are going on in this world that are hard for me to understand and hard to get around how to help people, I might go to Teresa and say, Teresa, help me understand how this works. 
They've got working knowledge. And in some ways, we might call this horse sense, right? But the Bible promises in the book of James that if I ask for wisdom, God will give it to me. That's a different thing from knowledge and understanding. That is the ability to apply that which I know in real-world situations to help people and to help people find Christ, to grow, to get all the way to heaven. Now, what they're doing is using knowledge, but they're not using it, and here's the words you need to put in your next blank. Wisdom implies the judicious use of knowledge. Good luck with spelling that. Judicious. It starts with a J, ends with an S. You're on your own with the stuff in between. Okay? Paul is literally saying to them, I read this this week and I thought, is he really saying this? He, i got to remember it now. He loves these people, but he's pretty, pretty hosed at how they're acting. And he says, you people really aren't as smart as you think you are. I don't want anybody to ever say that to me. But I imagine occasionally I need it. You're not really as smart as you think you are. The problem is not knowledge. They've got that. The problem is wisdom. And that is in short supply. Now, how many have ever in your life, raise your hand, eaten cotton candy? Okay, most of us, right? Haven't had any in a long time. And as I was thinking about this this week, I thought, I thought, you know, that sounds really good. Um, um, by the way, I need to stop for a second. And, uh, Roger and I had a conversation. We need to continue to pray for Julie, but we really think she'll be back here even in a couple weeks. She's improving by leaps and bounds, slowly but doing well. And, um, and we just want to pray for you and pray for Julie. He, he thanks us for continuing to pray for her and for the support. And, and uh, yeah. uh, What reminded me of that, Roger, is you were talking about being an adult diabetic. Cotton candy is probably not on your list of things you can eat. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, you can look at me and tell I've still got too much of something. But um, cotton candy is interesting because it's literally, it just takes a little bit of sugar to make this stuff. They heat it up and then kind of make it into this whatever, whatever it is, and they roll that, you know, that, that it, it's, kinda, it's, a, it's a toilet paper thing, isn't it? That they, yeah. Something like that. And then when you put it in your mouth, it kind of, kind of dissolves. I mean, you really don't get much. Did you know, by the way, cotton candy was invented by a dentist? Doesn't that make sense? It really, one of the guys that invented that process was a dentist. He was looking out for business. But, but you know what, what I think about cotton candy is knowledge can be kind of like cotton candy. It's easy to get caught up in kind of this sweet feeling that knowledge brings to us. But if I don't apply it rightly, it's just going to dissolve in my mouth and not do anybody any good, any good including me. What knowledge, um, what knowledge of a spiritual nature might lead you and me to kind of a cotton candy Christianity? That's the question I want to ask. This Christianity with lots of knowledge, but not a whole lot of substance. I just don't want to live that way, do you? And Paul didn't want them to live that way. Bob? Uh, 
So I'll just do what I want to do. Yeah. And that's dangerous. That's really what he's going after here. Now, I want you to think about an adage that I began to think about when I was in college, meeting with some guys who were incredibly smart, smarter than me, but had no applicational wisdom. And I remember somebody said, well, you know, some people are so spiritually minded, they're of no earthly good. And that's kind of true. That's in some ways, we got some knowledge here, but we're not doing anything with it. I want to really be careful with that. Now, let's go on. Steve Blair, do you mind to read four through eight? Okay, but I left two, two blanks unfilled, and I know you're just making you nuts. Let me fix that, okay? This cotton candy Christianity we're talking about, God is neither impressed nor fooled by how much you know. Now, by the way, that sets me kind of at ease because I'm constantly trying to impress L.E., and I never get that done. He sits by me in Bible study, and he's never impressed with how much I know, which, by the way, is one of the things I love about you. And I really can't impress God or Ellie, okay? He's not really impressed by how much I know. He wants to know about what I'm doing with it, what the depth of that is. And so he begins then to deal with a couple of other slogans that are heard in the church, okay, in his day. Uh, One of them would be something like here, um, uh, starting here in verse 4, There is no such thing as an idol in the world, okay? So there's kind of this one little piece of knowledge, and this is true. These idols aren't real. So that's one of the little slogans that they're kind of doing. The idols really aren't real. And the second one goes along with that, and it's actually kind of a paraphrase of Old Testament Scripture. Uh, Something like, um, um, they would paraphrase it here as he's quoting it, there is no God but one. Okay, now, let's go, somebody if you would, Go to Deuteronomy 6, 4, maybe the salient verse in all of the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 6, 4, it governed every Jewish person's life. Okay, somebody get it? Who will go there and read it for us out loud? I'm looking for an Old Testament. Thank you, Cindy. Cindy, you'll get it. That'll be good. All right. Uh, Deuteronomy 6, 4, sometimes called, if if you've got lots of knowledge, you know that this is called the Shema in Jewish life. It was what they quoted every day. And they were commanded to teach it to their children, to make them memorize it, recite it several times a day. It was to govern all their thought and all their thinking. Okay? Cindy, read Deuteronomy 6 4. Okay, I want you to stop. I want you to read five in just a second, but I want to stop there. The, the most important truth in all of Israelite history, okay? Ruth, as we're praying for that nation. 
the nation, the political nation of Israel now, they, they should still believe this central truth. The Lord our God is one. There's only one, and he's it. Okay? That was woven through the fabric of their whole culture. Go ahead and read five. Had Jesus learned this as a young Jewish boy? You bet he had. Because remember, he's asked, what's the greatest commandment? He quotes this and then adds from Leviticus, love your neighbor as yourself. All right? So the governing truth, and this is good, okay? This second slogan has to do with the power of an idol, and there is none, right? Uh, and then the second is, in, in, in verse 5 and 6 here, there is but one true God. They get that. They've got that. Wisdom, they've got, they've got that knowledge, which can lead to wisdom, should. But the problem is, if they rest on only that truth alone and don't apply it to how they're doing life, there are some unintended consequences that are going to come. And that's what Paul's going after. Let me take the last 10 minutes or so we have together to kind of deal with that. All right? There, this is all true. Uh, he, he teaches... He, he's going after and does about a paragraph here where he's dealing seriously with monotheism, with there is only one God. He says, you guys have got that right, but you've got to go further with it. For some, this practice that they were dealing with, in other words, the practice of since there is only one God and since the little g gods are only idols, they're only wood and stone, then I can go to the barbecue and it won't hurt my conscience. The problem is there were some unintended consequences that were that contained for some a very big spiritual danger. That's what goes in your next blank. So what's the big deal? Well, the big deal is, in, in my opinion at least, as I've studied this this week, for some, there were some in the church who weren't there yet. Okay? There were some in the church who weren't there yet. Let me explain. There were some who, if you and I were in church today and said, uh, where are you going to lunch? And they said, well, I'm going to the, um, to that, I've got to think of it. I was going to use the word, the name Isis, because that was a goddess from that. That's probably not good for right now for what's going on. But I'm going to go to the temple of Isis. They're having a barbecue there. It's free. Come go with me. Well, now, I have just been converted from paganism a month ago. I'm in the corner in the Corinthian church scratching my head saying, what? Why would you do that? I used to worship over there. Um, when I was in seminary, uh, uh, the kind of the evangelism expert in our seminary who really had written a lot and knew a lot and, and I learned a lot from him, called this, this is interesting, and he talked about it in our culture, he called this the pagan pull. The pagan pull. My old life, it's constantly beckoning to me to come back into it. And for them, this, their old life had so much to do with offering what sacrifice they could and worshiping in front of a god of bronze or stone or wood. That they're looking at me, an older Christian somewhere down the road, with all this wisdom and all this knowledge, right? Or at least knowledge. Saying, it doesn't matter what I do. I've been at this a long time. I got this. This is simple. 
I can do this and my conscience will be completely clear. And there's a brand new baby believer, former pagan, being pulled back by paganism who's saying, uh, I don't know if I ought to do that or not. In fact, I haven't been over there to that temple since I found Jesus. And I don't think this is a good thing for me. But you know what? Darling David are going, I'll go. Do you see the issue here? It is really critical. It's just as critical as what they covered in Acts 15 when they decided uh, what do Gentiles need to do in order to kind of continue in the church. So we've got this issue here that there's a really, really big danger here. And the issue that you and I need to understand in our culture, as it was in theirs, what is at, at stake here um, is not what we eat. You and I know that what we eat is important to our health. But it's not about food. For them, there were spiritual implications of their food choices. Um, uh, it may be somewhat to you, but, but we, don't, we, we think about it more in terms of health. I, um, uh, I bought some book. I, I was at Mardell this week. By the way, you notice I didn't say Mardell's. Some people call it Mardell's. I was going to Walmarts. My dad used to go to Walmarts. <laughs> if you like generic food, you might go to Aldi's. And none of those have an S on the end of them, including Mardell's doesn't have an S on the end of it. Okay, you're laughing because you do the same thing. I went to Mardell's this week. And, uh, you know, what you need to do when you're in Mardell's is always look at the discount book thing. I, I do. And I found this book for this writer that I really love, and they were a buck. Hardback book for a buck. You know, I'm a sucker for that. And, uh, and it was Shauna Nyquist, who I love her writing style. But Shauna, it just lives in a different culture than I live in. And uh, a lot of this book, she just refers really openly about, uh, and she's a Christian, she's a committed Christian. I love her writing, and especially for young women. I've given her books a lot. But she talks a lot in this particular book in particular about um, drinking at the table, you know, wine at the table, and sometimes stiffer things than wine at the table. And I don't really have an issue with that, but I just, as I've passed this book out this week, and I bought several of them, I've had to say, okay, you need to be aware that this is not part of my lifestyle, but she's going to talk about it a lot. It's a kind of a foodie book, and she talks about that. And, but, you know, isn't it interesting that I've got to give that disclaimer? Um, well, what we're dealing with here is um, it's not about that. It's not about the food I eat. It's about what I'm going to do in my influence on other people. Um, the use or uh, certainly the abuse of alcohol is another one of those issues, isn't it? Now, let's read the rest of the story. Somebody go to verse 9 and read down through 13. Sin against your brothers in this way. 
Okay, five minutes. Here we go. Now, this is it. This is serious to Paul. And he, so he begins to deal with this idea. Now, what I want to ask to overlay the, the final part of this session is can my freedom, okay, be abused? Things that I can do without the slightest twinge of conscience, does it really matter? Well, Paul's going to say it kind of does. In fact, he's going to remind me that I don't live in isolation. In fact, this whole series that we're dealing with and some of these commands on living and making priorities have to do with how we're going to live together in community. Okay? So Paul's going to say, you don't live in isolation. There are other people around you that you're also kind of responsible for. So it does, my freedom can be abused. And so in verse 10 and 11, he begins to kind of deal with this issue of, I must not risk another's faith so that I can exercise my own liberty. Now, would somebody go to Romans 14? I want us to read 13, 14, and 15 out of Romans 14. Eileen, would you mind to find that? Romans 14, and it just says 15 on your outline. I want us to read 13 through 15. Okay, now catch this again. I must not risk another's faith so that I can exercise my own, my own liberty. Um, what I can do without a twinge of conscience may cause someone else to stumble. And I realize that I don't live in isolation. Okay, Romans 14, verse 13. Eileen, did you find that for us? Just back two or three pages from where we are. Go on through, down through 15, would you? There's two phrases that I think I've got to settle. I've got to settle on when I'm making life choices. Okay, that are dealt with here. Okay, first one is, he says, um, I, I just love the way this. He says this. I've got to walk according to love, and I've got to remember that every one of you is someone for whom Christ died. I've got to walk according to love as I'm making decisions, and remember that. This person and that person and this person is somebody for whom Christ died. Paul's going to say it in verse 12 this way. The Lord notices what we decide to do. He notices. He's not, you know, a 50-pound bloodshot eyeball watching in that way. You know, that's what I thought when I was 17. Ralph, you did too, okay? Didn't we all think when we, were, we thought... You know, he was getting ready to zap me like a French fry when I was stepping on the crack in the sidewalk. It's not that, but the Lord does notice the decisions I make. They matter, especially to those weaker and younger around me in faith. Now, i got to be careful not, not to overdo this, or that becomes legalism, doesn't it? I just want to be careful with that. I wish we had more time to deal with that. But if I go too far with this, it becomes legalistic, and that's not the issue. Paul feels strongly enough about this. Can I tell you something? I'm not sure I feel this strongly about it. Paul feels strongly about it 
strongly enough about it that he vows that he would become a vegetarian if he had to. That's what goes in the last blank. I feel strongly enough about this that I'll never eat meat again, he says. I'm thinking, Paul, don't say that. I've got a pulled pork in my refrigerator. You know? Charles? You're right. Each of us has got to make about our decisions. But Charles, what I've got to deal with is I've got to remember this law of love that we live together. I have a responsibility to you. Now, let me, let me give you one illustration real quick. Piper turned five this week. My oldest grandchild is now five, and she looks so old. It's awful. And I couldn't be there. And what I'm realizing at five she can now do some things that at three, Violet cannot. She gets it. She has a knowledge, and even a working knowledge, in a way that, that Violet does not. For instance, um, you know, when it, I really trust Piper to play in the backyard that is not fenced, and no, she won't go down the street. That is not the case with Violet. She's a free spirit. There's no telling where I'll find her. It's just the way it is. And in fact, I know that if we're all together, I know that if we're getting ready, if we're walking across a, a kind of a busy parking lot at a restaurant or something, I know that Piper can kind of figure all that out. She's five. But I also know that Viley can't. So guess what we do? We all hold hands. The three-year-old, the five-year-old, the 58-year-old. We all hold hands. Do I need somebody to hold my hand to cross the street? Uh-uh. <laughs> okay, it's a bit of a stretch. There's, there's my conscience right over here. But isn't it true? Here's the, here's the image I want you to catch. I slow down. I take a hand, not because I need it necessarily, but because one younger than me is at peril. Okay? And you know what? Paul's going to say, I'll never eat pulled pork again if that's what that means. Because I want to see this one and this one and this one and this one naked. So guess what we're going to do? We're going to join hands and we're going to do this together. All right? I love you. It's good to see you. We'll be in chapter 10 next week, okay?